So we have uh, been making our way through the Gospel of Matthew uh, lately, and so uh, this morning we, we've been looking at the parables of Jesus uh, the last couple of weeks, uh, and this morning we're going to kind of make a shift for the next couple of weeks looking at some of the miracles of Jesus. And so I was thinking about that, you know, we were kind of moving from uh, Jesus teaching about the kingdom to showing us what life in the kingdom is like, right? So we go from kind of the discourse where Jesus is, is teaching to uh, some of the miracles that teach us about both the kingdom and its king. And so the, the first miracle we're going to kind of deal with today is not the first miracle of Jesus, but it is, interesting enough, the only miracle that's recorded in all four gospel accounts, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record this miracle. The only other thing they all record uh, is the resurrection. And so this is one of those interesting miracles that uh, the Lord and the Spirit felt important enough to include in all four of the gospel accounts. And so for those of you who have even been loosely affiliated with the church growing up, uh, you'll immediately recognize this parable, right? Uh, Jesus feeds 5,000 men with a handful of bread uh, and a few fish, right? This is a pretty familiar story. The problem is when we come to a story that's so familiar to us uh, is that the familiarity with it uh, can dampen our awe at what happens, right? We've seen and heard the story so much that we miss that this is a miraculous story, right? That Jesus does something that no man can do, right? This is a miracle. Uh, God enters into his space and does something that defies our understanding, right? This is a miracle. The other danger is to simply focus on the miracle and miss the message within. And so as I studied for this, my prayer is, that today we can strike the balance between appreciating this miraculous event for what it is and rightly understanding the lessons contained within. And so if you have your Bibles, open them to Matthew chapter 14. Uh, We'll begin at verse 13, Matthew Matthew chapter 14, beginning at verse 13. We're going to pick up uh, just a little bit after where we left off last week. And so if you have your Bibles, turn them to Matthew 14. Uh, Before we get into that, we're going to look at uh, the, the first division The first thing we find in our text, rather, is Jesus models for us service beyond our self-interest. And so if you're taking notes, uh, that is the first. Jesus models for us service beyond our self-interest. And so uh, what we're going to see is in this parable, beginning in verse 13, uh, Jesus is going to show us this lesson. And so uh, we'll put that right back up after the scripture so you can, if you're taking notes. Uh, Matthew 14, 13. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now, let's just stop there for a minute, because what we're going to see is this Jesus modeling for us service beyond our self-interest. Now, so in this in the story, it says, now, when Jesus heard this, so the immediate context is the gruesome and unnecessary death of John the Baptist, right? So John the Baptist had been arrested uh, because he dared speak against Herod uh, and the Tetrarch. And then after a certain amount of time, uh, due to some things that happened with Herod, John beca- uh, they, they put John to death. They behead John. And so uh, the Bible says that his disciples, John's disciples, come to Jesus and tell him all the details, right? Like the, the gruesome, uh, they buried John, and this is kind of what has happened. And so Jesus says when Jesus hears this, he withdraws. But in the Gospel of Mark and Luke, 
we find that this timing also corresponds to the return of the 12 apostles. Uh, Jesus has sent them out two by two to proclaim the kingdom, to heal, all those things. And they kind of come back and tell them everything that's happened. And, and it seems like these two events kind of happen pretty close together, right? So his disciples come back and they're telling, listen, you know, even the demons are subject to us. Like people, uh, we're preaching, we've been proclaiming. They come back after their short-term little mission, mission journey there. And then John's disciples come and say, John has been beheaded. So these two things kind of come together. And so I think he, he withdraws for... Uh, a few reasons. I mean, remember, John the Baptist was his cousin, right? So I'm sure there is a, a, a some mourning that's happening. I mean, his cousin has been killed, and he knows that he's been killed unnecessarily. And so there's got to be a little bit of that. And two, rumors are probably already swirling that Herod uh, was scared that Jesus was actually John the Baptist come back from the dead. So Herod's guilt is so great that when he starts hearing about this Jesus who's doing all these miracles, he thinks, this must be John, come back to haunt me, right? So Jesus, you know, maybe he wants to get away from that. He wants to get away from that situation. Um, three, we know that from knowing the Gospels and knowing our Scripture that Jesus' mind is never far from his own impending death at the hands of the Roman government. So I'm sure there's a little bit of that foretaste as he thinks about his own death and his own hand at the hands of the Roman government. But listen, it also seems to be an attempt to get away from the pressing demands of ministry. In Mark, he says to the disciples, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And so what we see is this season of ministry for Jesus and his disciples has been a busy season. Jesus has been uh, proclaiming the kingdom. He's been healing. The disciples have been sent out. And, and so they've been going from town to town proclaiming the kingdom, healing the sick. It's not hard to see the motivation for withdrawing, right? Like uh, Mark records from Peter's own experience that they did, they were so busy, they didn't even have a chance to eat, right? Like they couldn't even get away just to eat together. They were so busy with what was with the ministry that they were doing. And so the Bible says that he withdrew from there uh, in a boat to a desolate place by himself, or as Mark translated, by themselves. The term is literally to a desolate place with his own. Uh, Jesus is trying to separate himself and his disciples from, from the, the crowds, right? He's trying to, so the crowds have been gathering, they've been coming to listen, they're so busy that remember at the parables he had to get in a boat and go out a little bit so that he could speak to the crowds, they were so vast. The disciples have been proclaiming kingdom and, and having good success, and so Jesus kind of wants to just get away uh, with his own. We certainly can't blame him for that, can we? Like we know what it's like to want to get away, right? To get away with uh, a loved one or some need some time for ourselves and, and take time to spend time with those closest to us. A, a time of refreshing and to process what has happened, even just to eat together in peace, as the disciples say. And so Jesus' retreat plan uh, involves getting into a boat and heading to a desolate place, right? That's his idea. We're going to get away. For the weekend, right? <laughs> we're going to get in a boat. We're going to cross the the boat, uh, the, the water to a desolate place. And if you're using the King James page, it says a desert place. Uh, but that's just a, a, the terminology is an uninhabited place, right? So he, he's getting out outside the cities, outside the towns, outside the hustle and bustle of life. He wants to get away to the, the wilderness, essentially, uh, to a desolate place. And so uh, we know from the other accounts that they're going to cross over the Sea of Galilee, 
to a place outside of Bethsaida. The problem is uh, the Sea of Galilee is kind of shaped like a bowl. And so as they go across the Sea of Galilee, if people are standing on the shore, they can see where the boat is headed, right? So you immediately see the problem. They're watching Jesus sell off and they're like, I know where he's going. And so they start, the Bible says they start to go around the shore uh, to cut Jesus off essentially where he lands. And so uh, the, I kind of picture this in my head as uh, the group starts out and as they're traveling through a, a town or through an area, someone says, where are you going? They, they say, we're going to find Jesus. And the crowd just keeps growing and growing so much so that when Jesus gets out of the boat on the other side, uh, the Bible says that there is a great crowd there, a multitude of people. And so they run around essentially the outside of the lake, uh, gathering people until they have this multitude of people. So I'll, just for a minute, I want to get our bearings. Uh, Jesus and the disciples are on a mission uh, to get some R&R, right? To, to get away, to get away from the crowds, to rest, to, to process the death of John the Baptist and all of this stuff. And so they, they just need a little bit of rest and they step out of the boat and the first thing they see is a great multitude of people streaming towards them, right? I mean, think about that for a minute. Like they, they, they're thinking the whole way across the Sea of Galilee, they're thinking, man, this is going to be so nice. It's just going to be us and Jesus and we're going to get some time just to, to relax and the first thing they see, maybe even before they get out of the boat, is this huge multitude. We know over 10,000 people uh, waiting for them to land. Like, right? This is what they see. What Jesus does next models for us what service looks like in the kingdom of heaven. Like, what Jesus does when he encounters this multitude shows us what service looks like in the kingdom of heaven. If you want to know how your life should look as a citizen of the kingdom, you don't need to look any further than the king, right? Like He's the model. So what does Jesus do? He serves. He serves in spite of what we may call his self-interest, at least in his humanity. Like he wanted to get away. He wanted to be with his disciples. And then he encounters this crowd, but he serves in spite of those things. And so, uh, But before we look at his response, I, w- I don't want to move too quickly p- past what the disciples must have felt in this moment, right? Like you can, you can almost feel the potential tension for the disciples. They've got in the boat, they're following Jesus, and serving the people comes crashing into their own self-interest of getting away, of resting, right? Which, by the way, is not wrong. Like rest is both biblical and good. Like we know that we need rest and we need seasons of rest and God built seasons of rest in for his people and for his land and like rest is not a bad thing. Jesus intentionally spent time apart from the crowds investing in his disciples. So nothing about what they want is wrong. But what happens when the good we want for ourselves conflicts with the needs of the people in front of us, right? What happens when the good we want for ourselves comes crashing into the needs of the people in front of us? Because that's what happens. The disciples get out of the boat and there is a multitude of people who have sought Jesus out. Now, we would not blame, listen, let's be honest. We would not blame the disciples if they turned the boat around, would we? Right? If they just said, nope, (laughs) started rowing back. We wouldn't be surprised if Jesus dismissed them and told them to come back later. Listen, I've come here to get away. I'll minister to you tomorrow. Like, that wouldn't be absurd. We know what Jesus is trying to do. We would understand because this is what we probably would have done, right? 
Not right now. I'm on vacation, right? This is my weekend. I'm not taking phone calls this weekend, right? Not now. I'm trying to get away. But what did Jesus do? What he always did. He started healing and teaching and serving the multitude. He immediately enters into ministering to the multitudes. I picture Jesus like getting out of the boat and John says he goes up to the mountain and starts teaching, but like his immediate response is not give me a minute. It's not let me take a break. It's not, it's, it's immediately enter into ministering to the multitudes. Why does Jesus do this? Well, we're told why he does it in, in scripture. Because he had compassion on them. If, you, if you're one that takes notes, I want you to write this down. Jesus' compassion for them outweighed his concern for himself, right? He gets off the boat and his compassion on the crowd outweighs his concern for himself. He wanted to get away. He wanted to get away for, for the, the death of John the Baptist. He wanted to get away for, with his uh, disciples. But his concern and compassion for them outweighed his current concern for himself. That's what the Bible says. He had compassion on them. And we talked about this terminology a few weeks ago, right? It means to be moved in, in the deepest part of who you are, right? It's not just an emotion. Uh, it, is, it is a movement to alleviate the suffering of another, right? Like it is something that moves us to action. Compassion is not just an emotion. It is a, something that moves us to action. And so the Bible says he healed their sick. So why did he have compassion on them? Mark says it was because they were like sheep without a shepherd. When Jesus saw this crowd coming to him, he saw that they needed direction. They needed healing. They needed ministry. Like that, They were like sheep who had no, no one to care for them and no one to lead and guide them. He, and so he was moved with compassion, and so he taught and he healed. He went right back to what he had been doing. Don't miss this. Jesus did this because this is who Jesus is. Jesus is compassionate. Do you know why? Because God is compassionate, right? We read that this morning. Over and over again, the Psalms tell us about the compassion of God. The Lord is gracious and merciful. We read that this morning. That word merciful means compassionate. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Psalm 51, have mercy on me, God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy or compassion, Blot out my transgressions. Psalms 86. But you, O Lord, are a merciful or compassionate God and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Like, this is who God is. And Jesus is God in the flesh. So nothing about him being compassionate ought to surprise us. Right? The fact that he is compassionate is normal. But what he models for us is a compassion that moves beyond self-interest. And if this is the way... Jesus is, if this is the way the king is, then it ought to be who his people are. We ought to be people of compassion. So how do we know if we're like this? How do we know if we're operating in this area of compassion? Well, I've got a a few questions for you. I want you to think about these situations. You're headed home after a long day and your phone rings. And you look at it and you know that the needs on the other end of this phone has the potential to derail or consume your evening if you answer it. Which way do you swipe, right? Do you answer it 
or do you ignore it? You see uh, a need of a brother or sister at church, and you know that meeting that need will cost you that money you've been saving to treat yourself to blank. Do you meet the need, or do you pretend like you don't see it? It's knowing that if you ask that person that you know is struggling, if there's anything you can do, that it will be intentionally offering up your time, your talents, and your resources at personal cost to yourself. How we respond in situations like this, right? When our service to others and our self-interest clash is a good indicator of where our hearts are. When my self-interest and my compassion come clashing together, which one wins is a good indicator of where my heart is. Because I'm either going to choose myself or I'm going to choose compassion. And what Jesus models for us is compassion over concern for ourselves. So how do we follow Jesus' example of serving that takes us beyond our own self-interest? We have to cultivate, cultivate compassion. And remember, compassion is being moved to meet a need, particularly when you have the means to do so, right? Compassion is not pity, feeling sorry for someone. Uh, compassion is not empathy. It's not being able to enter into their suffering and understand what they're going for. Compassion says, I see your suffering and I have it within the ability to meet it. And so I'm going to be moved to meet it. So the question becomes, listen, the question is not, do I feel like serving? It is, can I help, right? Is there something that I can do to meet the need of this person. Not do I feel like it, not is it convenient, not is it easy, but can I? Because if I can, and compassion says I must, right? Compassion moves me to meet the suffering of others. And the only way to cultivate that is to continually choose compassion over self-interest until it becomes the way that I operate. Listen. I believe this. We will never be a faithful follower of Jesus until our compassion for others outweighs our concern for ourselves. We can't. Until our compassion for others outweighs our concern for ourselves, we cannot faithfully follow Jesus. This is his model. This is what he pictured for us. This is what it looks like in the kingdom of the heaven. So the first thing we see in this feeding of the 5,000 is just that Jesus models for us service beyond our self-interest. The second is we have to realize that Jesus calls us to responsibilities larger than our resources. Jesus calls us to responsibilities larger than our resources. Wouldn't it be nice that if Jesus called us to do something, we always had enough in our pocket, right? But that's not the way that the kingdom of heaven operates. I want you to follow along with me starting in verse 15. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. And the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they do not need to go away. They need not to go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. Let's stop there for a minute. Now, I want you to, kind of remember where we are. So they, they've crossed over to get rest. The crowd meets them. 
Uh, it's probably early in the morning at this point, and Jesus seemingly ministers to them all day. He puts on a, a clinic. He's healing people. He's teaching. He, he's probably got his disciples helping, and so there's this kind of all-day thing. And so when evening comes, which uh, we're told uh, that there's a evening in this word, it, it can mean two different time periods, early evening, which would be like 3 to 6 p.m., and late evening, which is like 6 to night time. And we know that this is the early one because after he feeds everybody and sends his uh, disciples away, the Bible says it's evening, right? And Jesus goes up to the mountain to pray. So this is probably around 3, 4 o'clock, right? So the, the disciples, this is what they're thinking. Uh, if something doesn't happen now, it's going to be too late, Right? If the, if the crowds don't go away now, before it gets too late, we're going to be stuck in this place with 10,000 people and no food, right? It's not going to go well. So they come to Jesus because the, the crowd isn't showing any signs of going away on their own, and they want Jesus to send the crowds away. They say this, send them away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Now, it seems like a reasonable request at first, doesn't it? I mean... This is what they're thinking. Like, haven't you done enough, Jesus? Like, didn't, didn't we go on this trip to kind of get away by ourselves? Isn't it time you sent them away to fend for themselves? Like, we might even give the disciples some credit for their concern for the crowds, right? Like, I mean, they're looking around. There's 10,000 people. They know if they don't get moving soon, they're going to get stuck. No food, no place to stay. Like, don't you think it's in their best interest, Jesus, to get them moving in Mark, it says, send them away into the surrounding villages to find lodging and get provisions. Like, okay, Jesus, enough. Look around. The crowd's too big. There's no place for them to stay, nothing to eat. Send them away so they can be cared for. Jesus says, no, you give them something to eat. I mean, don't miss that, right? 10,000 people or more. They've been working all day, and he goes, no, they don't need to go away. It's not necessary they go away. You just feed them. And we miss the emphasis here. This is not just a remark from Jesus. This is in the Greek. This is a command of Jesus. Jesus says, no, you guys feed them. Great idea about sending them away, but I got a better idea. You take care of it. Jesus says they don't need to leave. It's not necessary for them to leave. In order to find food, you give it to them. So at this point, the disciples have recognized the need around them. There are thousands of people who in a few hours will be hungry and stuck in the wilderness without food. Uh, I mean, they're, they're, they're taking into account the needs of the multitude, right? They're, they're, they're even strategic in their thinking. If this many people are going to get to a town in order to find food and shelter, they better leave now. It's early evening. They know that they're not going to leave unless Jesus says so. They, so they go to Jesus. They make him aware of the problem. They say, hey, Jesus, send these people away. But Jesus turns it around and lays the responsibility of feeding the multitudes plainly at the feet of the disciples. He says, you feed them. Now, what's interesting whenever you have an account that, that is across all four Gospels is there's, there's varying details because each gospel writer had its, his own purpose for the wording and the language he used, although it all tells the same story right as a spirit moved to tell the story and so uh, we don't know how precisely like this back and forth between Jesus and the disciples go uh, but we know that there are a few things from the other gospel accounts that help us um, we know from the gospel of Luke that there was a moment that they contemplated the means of meeting their responsibility he says we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we are to go buy food for all these people so they go okay well like we could feed them if we go buy food for all of them like so that's one option 
We know in the Gospel of Mark, they contemplate the cost of meeting this responsibility laid at their feet by Jesus. Mark says uh, in his Gospel, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them to eat? John helps us draw out these contemplations. Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread that so many people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here with us, five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And so uh, the conversation kind of goes, they, they realize that there's a need. Jesus says, where are we going to get food to buy them? They said, well, we could go buy it, but it's going to take 200 denarii to even buy enough for a bite. Philip, where, where would we buy it? Because Philip's from the area, right? So Jesus is kind of leading this contemplation because what he wants them to understand is they do not have the resources, right? We only have five loaves and two fish. There's the crux of the problem. Jesus has given them a responsibility to feed the people, and they don't have the resources, right? To feed over 10,000 people, they would have to go and buy food for them in the nearby towns. And to do so, they would need over eight months of wages to even buy enough to feed everyone a little bit. 200 denarii is about eight months of daily wages working six days a week. Eight months. What they do have is five loaves of bread and two fish in the middle of nowhere and very little, if any, money. It's kind of a crazy story, isn't it? Now, I know it messes with with some of the Sunday school version of this story, but the loaves and the fish were probably already the disciples. The boy was probably carrying it for them because Jesus tells them what? Don't go see what you can find. He says, go see what you have. Jesus tells them to go take inventory of what they have on the resources you have to meet the responsibility I've given you. Go see what you have. So likely they had brought a very meager ration of bread and fish so they could eat here in this place when they got away from the crowds, right? But now Jesus calls them to meet a far greater need than what they have resources for. So here we are. I want to kind of pause that story for a minute. So they're, they're sitting there. They've got a responsibility to feed the multitudes. They've got a handful of loaves and a few fish. But for us today, we ought to be weary or wary when we feel like we can meet our responsibilities as followers of Christ in our own power, in our own merits, and with our own resources. We ought to be wary if we think we can meet the demands of Christ, responsibilities given to us in our own power or with our own means. Listen, we're either not giving God credit for his work or we're failing to live to the responsibility he's called us to do, right? I mean, can we just like put to bed this nonsense about God not giving you more than you can handle? The whole of Christian life is more than you can handle, right? From beginning to end. I can't even find it within myself apart from God's power to even want salvation in the first place. And then having been saved, I am constantly faced with my meager resources to battle sin, to live in light of the gospel, to advance the kingdom of God in my life. Like all of Christianity is being called to responsibilities far exceeding my resources. This is Christianity. 
in a nutshell, it is looking around at a crowd of 10,000 people and having five loaves of bread and two fish. In my own power, with my own resources, I will never, never meet the responsibilities that Christ has laid at my feet. And listen, this is far from the last time Jesus calls these disciples the responsibilities beyond their resources. Before he ascends into heaven, he says, take the gospel to the ends of the earth, right? This ragtag band of fishermen and tax collectors and zealots, nobodies from a small corner of a great big world, no resources, no schooling, and no influence. And he says, go take my gospel to the ends of the earth. But there, as he does here, he does not leave us in our own power to meet the responsibilities before us. There he says, and I will be with you until the end of the age, right? So the disciples find themselves in this moment where their resources are far outpaced by their responsibilities. And so what do we do with this understanding that Jesus calls us to responsibilities greater than our resources? We do what the disciples did. We take a look at the magnitude of the responsibility, the meagerness of our resources, and we entrust them to the God of the universe to accomplish in us and through us what he called us to do. This is a story. So I made a statement a minute ago that we will never be faithful followers until our compassion for others outweighs our concern for ourselves. The second statement is this. We will never be a faithful follower of Jesus until we realize how inadequate we are for the task at hand. We will never faithfully follow Jesus until we realize how inadequate we are for the task at hand. So the first thing we see in this feeding of the 5,000 is Jesus models for us service beyond our self-interest. The second is we realize that Jesus constantly calls us to responsibilities larger than our resources. And finally, we humbly acknowledge that Jesus uses our meager resources to magnificent ends. Jesus takes the meager bit that we have and he uses it for magnificent ends. We see it in this story perfectly. Jesus says in verse 18, bring them here to me. And then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. And then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. And so I've been referencing over 10,000 people. That's why uh, the 5,000 is just men. Uh, and you have women and children. So the estimate could go all the way up to fifteen or 20,000. But this is, I feel comfortable saying, 10,000 people. So Jesus, uh, the disciples, they're kind of at the end of themselves. They say, we, we have five loaves and two fish. And Andrew says, what is it in the, in the face of all of this? And Jesus says, bring them here to me. Turn over to me what you have. Right? Doesn't seem like much. It's barely enough for the 12 of you, but give it to me. And then he says, have the, uh, the people sit down on the grass. Uh, and this is such an interesting detail to me. He has the disciples have the people sit down on the grass in groups of about 50. 
essentially, he has the disciples prepare the people for a feast when at the time there is no feast, right? He says, sit down in groups of 50 and get ready. Get ready for what? Get ready to eat. There's a feast. And so he tells the disciples to have the people sit down and listen. I, w- I want you to, to there's, a, there's a, a cross-reference here I don't want you to miss. It's from the Gospel of John. John mentions uh, the, a feast, and he does it, I think, to, to kind of cultivate our hearing uh, so that we'll think about this, what's fixing to happen. He says, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. Lifting up his eyes, that is Jesus, and seeing a large crowd that was coming towards him, this is the same event. Jesus said to Philip, where do we buy bread so these people may eat? He said this to test for himself. He knew what he was about to do. And so John points out that there's a feast going on in the Jewish religion. And Jesus actually kind of ties it to this. He says, where are we going to get a bread for all of these people so that they may feast? So Jesus has them sit down for a feast. More specifically, he has the disciples have them sit down for a feast. Now, I want you to think about this. They can't know what's coming, right? Like, they they don't know what's coming. Jesus hasn't done anything like this yet. And so they trust that Jesus is going to do something magnificent, even with their meager resources. This is a pretty great picture of faith in action. Faith moves us to act as though... In response to God's commands, trusting that if he has commanded it, he will look right. So they have people sit down, and can you imagine the people? What are we getting, we're getting ready, we're getting ready to eat. Where's the food, right? Like, I hadn't seen any big caravans or baskets, and I hadn't seen it, you know, like, but the disciples were like, no, just sit down in 50. This is what the master has commanded, right? And they're sitting people down for this feast, and so they're acting as though there's already food. This is a picture of faith, and I was looking back over the Old Testament, and this happens again and again. In First Kings, there's a widow that Elijah asked her to bake him some bread, and she says, listen, I only have a little bit of flour and a little bit of oil. I'm actually going to go bake the last loaf for my son and I, and then we're going to die. And Elijah says, bake me a a small loaf first. And God says, your flour and oil won't run out. So she does. She takes what she thinks is the last bit of her flour and oil, and she bakes a cake for Elijah. And the Bible says her oil and flour did not run out during the drought, right? She acted as though because God had promised. And then you fast forward to Elijah. Elisha, rather, Elisha, one of the wives of the prophets comes and says, listen, my my husband has died. I don't have anything. The the creditor is trying to come take my children. He says, what do you want me to do? What do you have? She said, just a jar of oil. He says, go get as many vessels as you can from your neighbors and begin pouring oil. And when you run out of vessels, the oil will stop. And so she gathers all of these vessels and she's, she's pouring oil over from this one jar over and over again. And he says, now go sell it and pay your debts. And then you and your sons can live on the rest. One jar of oil and you're knocking on your neighbor's door going, hey, I need to borrow as many containers as you have, right? Because God said so, I'm going to act as though, right? Over and over again. Listen, preparing to enter Jericho before the walls fell, right? The priest stepping into the water with the ark before it dried up at their feet. Peter stepping out on the boat into the water. The men rolling the stone away before Jesus called Lazarus out. On and on we see this idea of trusting God to do what he said he has done despite our seemingly helpless situation, our surprisingly meager resources, or our obviously lack of abilities. Over and over again. This is the message of scripture. If God has commanded it, you can trust it. Right? So Jesus said, have them sit down. So they do. 
even though in all sense of counting resources and, and management, all these things, this is impossible. And yet Jesus takes the loaves, he blesses them, and he breaks them and gives them to disciples. Now, Matthew just kind of, his, his version is kind of cut and dry. It doesn't tell us how Jesus does this or, or, or what he does with the fish. But in Mark, there, there's kind of a, there's a word that's translated, we can read it like this, giving thanks, he broke the loaves and kept on giving bread to his disciples. So it's, it's almost like the bread is multiplying in his hands as he hands it to his disciples. And so he breaks it and he hands it to one disciple and he keeps breaking and hands it to the next disciple and then keeps breaking and hands it. And it is, this is a miraculous multiplication. And so the disciples distributed the food to the crowds, but Jesus fed them. Jesus gave the bread to the disciples and told them to give them to the crowds. I want you to listen to this. Jesus' divine intervention did not free them from their responsibility. It enabled them to meet it. He said, you feed them. And ultimately they did. Jesus' divine intervention didn't free them from their responsibility. It enabled them to meet it. So when Jesus calls us to responsibility, we don't take our hands off and say, okay, someone else will do it. We say, God, you're going to have to do it through me, right? So in the end, they fulfilled their responsibility, but not in their own power, but through the miraculous working of Christ. And the Bible says they ate and they were satisfied. Such an interesting word. And likes Philip's estimate that even eight months of money, they would all get a bite. Jesus provides so much that everyone not only eats, but the word is they're stuffed, right? This is like Thanksgiving pushed back from the table full, right? The Bible says they ate enough that they were stuffed. And then Jesus says, go gather up the leftovers that nothing may be lost. And they gathered them up and they filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. We don't know the full number, 5,000 men plus women and children, but listen, just feeding 5,000 men from five loaves is pretty miraculous, right? There's no, there's no doubt that this was a miracle, which is the whole point of the record. If you take from this, all you take from this is that you should feed the poor. If all you take from this story is that we should serve even when it's inconvenient, you miss the whole point. Only God can do this, right? Only God can take five fish and or five loaves and two fish and feed a crowd of 10,000 people. This is what the people say. And John, we find this. This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. They get it. This was not some small thing. Jesus did a miracle that only someone with the power of God could do. They are ready right then to make Jesus their king. What had been debated in the temple courts, challenged in the synagogues, became very clear in light of this miracle in the wilderness. No one but God could do what Jesus just the whole miracle attest, testifies to who he is. And the people see it. Sadly for, for them, as we see in the following passages of John, the people are more interested in making him king for the free food than for the right reasons. He says, you're only seeking me because you ate, right? You, you, and you were full. But listen, their wrong motives 
Do not diminish the fact that this miracle testifies to who Jesus is. Jesus took the meager resources of his disciples and worked in such a way that people recognized that only God could have done what had happened. The disciples organized the people. The disciples gathered the meager resources and the disciples distributed the food, but it was Jesus who met the need through his divine and miraculous work. Now here's the the challenge in the whole of the story. Would you, a disciple and follower of Christ, through compassion for others, serve them by giving up what little you had so that the name of Jesus would be manifested among those impacted through his work? I'm afraid that too many of us would be content to share the five loaves and two bread between the 12 of us than to surrender what little we had so that Jesus' name could be made great. Does Jesus need what we have? Of course not. Could he have made bread and fish appear? Absolutely. But God chooses to work through regular men and women like you and I who are fully prepared to surrender what we have for his purposes. It'll never seem like enough. But in the hands of God, right? In obedience to his command, he will make it enough to meet the needs that we've been called to fill, meet the responsibilities, and also make great the name of Christ. Three lessons this morning that call us to a greater understanding of the kingdom of heaven. My prayer is that God would give us ears to hear this morning. Let's pray.